What is the perfect story? Does it exist? Is there a tangible formula? Has the perfect story ever been told? And if so, are we simply trying to retell the story over and over? This podcast is called The Midnight Myth, and somewhere between the black of night and the break of dawn, there is a story, and it's perfect. My name is Derek Jones. And my name is Laurel Hostack. Welcome to The Midnight Myth. Welcome back to the Midnight Myth, everybody's favorite podcast where we analyze, discuss, disseminate history, mythology, philosophy, and how they bubble up into our popular storytelling. I gotta tell you, I couldn't be more excited to be back. Podcasting is such an interesting passion project for Laurel and I. Often we find ourselves in places we didn't expect. This can happen in so many different ways. For example, we plan to do a podcast about the book, The Fellowship of the Ring, the first of the Lord of the Rings series. Lo and behold, here we are doing part two, our second podcast on that subject, because we didn't even scratch the surface of what we wanted to talk about. So here we are. Hopefully you listened last week. In fact, you must listen last week because we're not going to really go over what we already talked about. But we started our conversation around J.R.R. Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring, and we really dived very deeply into the books. We talked about the language and how it's written more like a history than it is like a fiction novel. We talked about two scenes that really meant a lot to us in Tom Bombadil's and when Haldir meets the adventuring parties on the borders between Moria and Lothlorien. And we have so much more to get to. We're not going to recap the book. We're not going to recap the movie because I think we just need to roll up our sleeves and get started because we don't want to run out of time twice and make this a trilogy because it's just one book um, and one movie. But I couldn't be more excited to be back talking about it Laurel, how are you feeling? I feel absolutely great. You know, this time constraint that we talk about, uh, we don't actually have like an oncoming train and we have to finish the podcast before it runs us over. Much like Tom Bombadil, our limitations are self-imposed, but we hope that you appreciate us breaking this up in a way that makes sense for you so that we have some more um, consumable podcast episodes that are about an hour rather than, you know talking all night. Um, but I'm excited to be back. We're going to get to the core of the book. I think in this one, we're going to get to some of the most important scenes and to some more, uh, uh, internal understanding of some of the characters. So I would love to jump right in. Uh, I'll just right here at the top, remind you that if you want to stay in touch with us, make sure that you follow us on Twitter at the midnight myth or on Facebook and Instagram at midnight myth podcast. Follow us on our website, midnightmyth.com. Drop us a line, buy some merch, support us on Patreon, whatever you can. Write us a review on Apple Podcasts. We would love to hear from you. And stay tuned on all of those channels, especially through this Lord of the Rings series, because we are going to do a very special Lord of the Rings-themed giveaway at the end of all of it. But without much further ado, shall we jump right in? Yeah, two other things. Yeah. One there is a new Midnight Myth podcast coming in the works, currently with discussions. More on that later. I teased that last week. Two, if you're dialoguing with us on Twitter, I said this last week as well, you're talking to Laurel, not to me, most likely. And if you want to reach me, I'm at Derek C. Jones 198 at Twitter. Love to hear from you. You probably won't because you want to talk to Laurel and not me. Totally get it. Come on. I'd be the same way too. Let's start talking about all things the Fellowship of the Ring. Well, 
Oh, one other just disclaimer here. In the last week's episode, I asked if we missed anything that you wanted to hear, please hit us up on Twitter. If you did, one, I love you. Thank you very much. But two, it won't be in this episode because we are not recording these in the release date. So we are literally recording this episode right after having recorded the last episode, but we're airing it a week later. So if you hit us up on Twitter in the middle and like, hey, maybe I'll get a shout out on the podcast. I'm sorry. It's just the way it worked. We were on such a roll that we had to just instantly record part two but the way we release them, that they're separated. Yeah, but please continue to send us your feedback, things that you want to hear uh, us discuss, or uh, things that you want us to write blogs about or just dialogue with us about. We would love, love, love to hear from you at all those channels. All right, so without further ado, here we are. We left out a ton. We talked very little about the main characters. We only highlighted two scenes. Where, Laurel, would you like to begin in diving deep into this book slash movie. I want to cut right to the heart, right to pretty much the center of the book and the moment when the fellowship becomes a fellowship. I want to discuss, if it's all right with you, uh, the Council of Elrond at Rivendell. I actually would love that among all things. So the Council of Elrond is convened by Elrond himself, who is the Lord of Rivendell. He is a high elf and a lore master. The hobbits have come through quite a few obstacles. They've met with Tom Bombadil. They've gone through Bree, and they have hooked up with Strider, a.k.a. Aragorn. And they have now made it through thick and thin uh, to the beautiful land of the elves in Rivendell. And Sam is having a grand old time. Frodo is reunited with his uncle Bilbo, who has been spending time with the elves here in Rivendell. And he gets a few gifts from Bilbo, including his old sword Sting right. and uh, the Mithril shirt, which is a very special uh, coat of mail. It's also worth pointing out Frodo has been near mortally wounded by being stabbed by a blade from the Nazgul, the ring wraiths who have been viciously pursuing Frodo who doesn't have any help from Gandalf, and if it wasn't for Strider slash Aragorn, probably would not have made it alive. Absolutely. So amazing that they have made it here, and an incredibly important moment, because as Elrond convenes this council of people from all over Middle-earth, of many of the free peoples of Middle-earth, we have elves, we have dwarves, we have men, uh, and we have halflings and wizards, all coming together to try and understand what to do about the ring, the ring of power. It's an interesting sequence because it's lengthy, extremely lengthy, and it takes us a while to get there. We've come through so many adventures already that it's not until the second half of the book that we're finally at the Council of Elrond, that we're finally getting close to putting together what you could call a fellowship of the ring. But the scene itself features a number of characters, including Bilbo and Gandalf and Elrond, telling the story of the ring from its inception, when Sauron created it, uh, through the, the first war against Sauron, when uh, Elendil, the king, fell on, uh, on the battleground and Isildur took up his father's sword, cut the ring from Sauron's hand, and then took it for himself, to how the ring finally traveled through to Gollum, to how Bilbo picked up the ring, and where it's been until now, to what Frodo has been going through with it. We have each of these characters in turn telling us this history. Kind of what we talked about last week on the episode, we have uh, history imparted through oral tradition, through storytelling, rather than through uh, written sources. And we have this all uh, in one council of these elite characters. Oh, yeah. And we also learn in this sequence of what delayed Gandalf from meeting Frodo to yeah. begin with. And we learned of the betrayal of Saruman. We learned that there are more wizards. Saruman is in league with the enemy and will be working against them because he has decided to join with Sauron and pursue ring the ring and pursue power over Middle Earth. And it is this midway point in which we get the formation of the Fellowship. But in a certain respect, let me let me ask you this about understanding this is where the fellowship uh, officially is formed. 
But I would also argue that Frodo has a fellowship in Sam, Mary, and Pippin before then. Sure. Because yeah. the first helpers that he has are his is his gardener and his two best friends. And Mary and Pippin figure out everything before they even get to um get Frodo to move his home. They figure out that he A has this ring, B it needs to leave, and C it's really dangerous, and they're gonna go with him no matter what. And similar in the movies, they decide at the end of this council, like, listen, wherever Frodo goes, we go. And Frodo continually says, I can't ask you to do this. I can't ask you to come with me. And they're like, it's not up to you. Yeah, we've already decided. We're a fellowship. We're going with you no matter what, to the end, no matter where this goes. They don't understand the real stakes. They don't understand the real sacrifices, but they are committed to the idea of friendship and helping Frodo no matter the cost. And I think that's the first fellowship of the ring. Yeah. And then we get the adventure party fellowship after the Council of Elrond. I think that's a good point. And it draws a distinction between the formalizing of institutions, right? So the the fellowship proper is a formalized, like, okay, you, 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 and you, all nine of you will be the company of the ring, and I deem you this, and we have done the ceremony, and now you are the fellowship of the ring. But that doesn't really hold a candle to, like, a true friendship, a brotherhood, a group of people who deeply care about each other and would give their lives for one another uh, in order to achieve this task. And the fellowship, the nine who are the company of the ring, do eventually get there just before they break apart, right? So we do eventually see them pass through enough trials together and lose one of their own in Gandalf. Uh, we, we see them come together as a party, but it doesn't happen at the Council of Elrond. So I think that that is important that you're bringing that up. Sort of like the Avengers. Like, S.H.I.E.L.D. puts together <laughs> yep. the Avengers. Officially, you have an Avengers ID card and you can swipe into the building, but you're not a team until you fight, you know, the Chitaris. So, uh, is it, was that right, Chitari? Yeah, you're fine. Okay, great. <laughs> you're doing um, great. I can't remember. Well, it's also important to note that in the book, none of them are under obligation to go any further yeah. than they choose. Yeah. At any point in time, they can leave. So the adventure party consists of Frodo, Mary, Pippin, and Sam, the four hobbits, Gimli, the dwarf, Legolas, Aragorn, Boromir, and Gandalf, their leader. And it is pretty much assumed that Boromir is going to go back to Gondor. Once they get to the crossroads of Mordor or Gondor, he's going to go back right. to Gondor. He's going with them because A, he thinks it's the right thing to do to travel with them. And B, he is on his way home and this is also his way home. Um, Gandalf is going to lead because he realizes probably more than any other character, the true dangers and perils. Aragorn's kind of want to kind of go to Gondor too. You get the sense. And Legolas and Gimli are compelled by honor by the end. When they get to the point, now it's different in the movie. The movie has Frodo decide to go into the rings of the, the um, pardon me, the mines of Moria. That doesn't happen that same way in the books. Frodo has to decide at the very end when they are left Lothlorien, they're traveling down the river, whether they turn south towards Gondor or they go into the east into Mordor. And, and essentially the choice is if we go to Gondor, one, we can all get rest, we can sleep indoors, and get the help of Gondor and Minas Tirith. Or two, they can sneak into Mordor, more clandestined, and sneak through there to Mordor, or pardon me, to Mount Doom, and destroy the ring. It is Frodo's choice to decide where to go next there. That is the moment where Frodo really has to decide what the company can do. And this is the moment where the team has never been closer They've never been a fellowship, stronger of a fellowship. And this is also the point where the fellowship breaks. Yeah, tragic. But I feel like we're getting ahead of ourselves. Let's go back to Rivendell. Yeah, absolutely. So one of the things that I wanted to bring into this conversation, uh, the, the conversation as a whole about Lord of the Rings, is some of the inspiration that Tolkien takes from his work as an academic medievalist. 
as a professor of English, as a student of medieval literature and of old English languages, uh, there is probably no uh, greater influence on English literature than Geoffrey Chaucer. And I think his influence is shown heavily in uh, the events of the scene of the Council of Elrond. So I want to talk a little bit about the Canterbury Tales here. Uh, you may have been forced to read the Canterbury Tales in high school or in college, either in a uh, Middle English or a Modern English translation of that. Uh, but Chaucer himself is known as the father of English literature. And this is because in a time when most literary work was being produced in French or in Latin for these high literate societies, uh, he chose to wrote to write in English, and he was writing for a courtly audience. So it was a pretty revolutionary act for him to do that. But his great work, his magnum opus, The Canterbury Tales, is uh, an incredible, uh, ambitious narrative of several pilgrims who are on a pilgrimage, which is a very common medieval practice, where you would go from the city uh, to a religious destination, either to Jerusalem or to Canterbury Cathedral, where these folks are going, or to some shrine of a saint, some other religious location. Uh, and these pilgrims have all gathered at an inn, uh, and they're sitting around, and an innkeeper proposes a contest between all of the pilgrims and says, everybody should tell a couple of stories, two stories on the way to Canterbury and two stories on the way back. So with all of the, I think, 30 or so pilgrims, the math gets us to 120 stories. There are not 120 stories in the Canterbury Tales because Chaucer didn't finish, but there are a number of tales, and they're pretty wonderful. But the pilgrims themselves are from all walks of life. They are from the three estates of medieval society. So we have the nobles, those who fought, knights. We have the clergy, those who prayed, and we have peasants, those who work. But we also have a rising merchant class. And we have the wife of Bath, who's been married five times and has a little bit of an economic uh, trade as well. We have people who fit neatly within the boxes that you think about with medieval society and people who don't. Just an incredible array of people who would never have encountered each other otherwise and are sitting around telling stories. You learn a lot about each person from the story that they tell, and you learn a lot about this medieval society from the stories that they tell. They include history, they include legend, some of them are told like little pieces of uh, fairy tale or myth, uh, and some are just silly satire. But what's really, uh, I think, compelling about this and what we see in the Council of Elrond is that language and storytelling brings these disparate groups together and helps them get insight into each other. I kind of think of the Canterbury Tales as an early adventure party uh, kind of narrative, almost like Dungeons and Dragons, which is deeply inspired by the Lord of the Rings. We have people coming from all over the world, from uh, all walks of life, sharing stories and going together on a quest. So interesting. The idea of communal storytelling itself being the glue to this um, Middle Earth Fellowship as it was in the Canterbury Fellowship. You know, one of the eras of time in which Tolkien as a man lived through was World War I and World War II. And at the end of World War II, a organization was formed called the United Nations, it was originally tried between World War I and World War II called the League of Nations, which right. failed. And the idea was, hey, we've done enough of this war thing. Let's tell a narrative of ourselves, and that is a narrative of cooperation and peace rather than us going to war. And the way in which the United Nations works, it gets a group of people together in a general assembly and everyone is given an opportunity or a chance to speak, to have their voices heard in their language so that there can be communication across nations so that they can work together for common purposes instead of trying to kill each other. Oh, yeah, great. And But honestly, 
it sounds very overly simplistic, but that is the idea. Yeah. Nations talking to each other are less likely to kill each other over a dispute. And this has been a principle of international relations we've been living on and living under for a long time. And largely speaking, has been successful at keeping the major militaries of the world from killing each other. When was the last time there's been a world war? There hasn't been one since the United Nations. And that is also a very flippant and glib way to discuss it. It's obviously more complicated than that. But under the idea of a council of Elrond to form a coalition for a single purpose, how does that happen? People have to get together and tell their tale. They have to tell their story. And we are reading the story of the council itself so that the council itself comes out of the narrative with a narrative. And that narrative is of people widely diverse from different parts of Middle Earth all coming together to decide to tackle a a mutual problem that they need to address. The problem in this is the One Ring. What do we do? What do you do when you're holding evil in your hand? What if we could hold evil in our hand? Now that we can, what do we do with said evil? And the Council of Elrond is the way that that problem is worked through and the way that it is discussed, and it leads to a coalition, an adventure party, a fellowship, to go out and try to tackle this problem, realizing that, Only one person can carry the evil, but someone else can be with that person to help them get to where they need to go to destroy it. Yeah. It's an incredibly optimistic scene, isn't it? When you think about it, uh, you know, the the heads, the representatives of the free peoples of Middle-earth, one of the great elves, one of the uh, highest order of wizards, uh, one of the representatives of uh, the steward of Gondor, the king who doesn't sit on his throne, and representatives from uh, the mines of Moria. We have these characters who uh, represent the upper echelon of their society, and they all sit around and say, how do we save the world? And it, that's that's incredibly optimistic. It, it's hard to imagine uh in the world that we live in today, all of the wealthiest or most influential or most powerful people sitting around and cordially saying, let's set aside our differences and save the world. And I find that um, very, it's comforting to read uh, The Lord of the Rings because it gives you this fantasy of of powerful people deciding to save the world. Um, But it also does bring that sort of bittersweet thing in for me because it's so optimistic. I don't know if you have any opinions on that, but I mean, yeah, I certainly do. I am fundamentally an optimist yeah, and I 100% believe that human nature is fundamentally good. I think the reason um, people can get together to solve their problems is because people have a vested interest in solving their problems. You know, do we often fail Yes, absolutely. Is uh, or are organizations like the UN often powerless in some of these problems? Yeah, certainly is. Well, one thing that if we're comparing the Council of Elrond to contemporary geopolitical politics and international relations, it's important to note that one, the Council of Elrond is undemocratic. Sure. Yeah. You know, it, and d- democracy makes things messier. It makes people free, but it also complicates things. You have a small group of people who represent large swaths of Middle Earth's population who can make the decision for them because the people underneath them don't decide. Yeah, they are not elected officials. Yeah, they're not. And this is all happening in the dark. None of their people know about it or have any input. And different from the movie, in the book, most of the characters that are there just happened to be in Rivendell at that time. It wasn't because they were coming there because of the problem of the ring. They just happened to be traveling in Rivendell and were there. And since they were important, influential, they were uh, invited to the council. So once you get to the point where it is a democratic process, where people are elected and then they get to this governing body to try to discuss the different ideas on how to solve problems, it gets harder and messier and it moves fundamentally slower but that doesn't change the optimism. 
for me, you know, I read the Council of Elrond as the ability to, one, represent lore manifest in reality. If myth and history and legend overlapped into a current contemporary problem and were happening simultaneously, you have a group of heroes there who are going to make a choice to try to, to fix that fundamental evil that's in the world. It's worth noting that they fail, right? Yeah, yeah. So is it overly optimistic? No, because they absolutely don't bond together. In fact, the fellowship fractures at its most crucial moment. The leadership in it breaks down, and a member of the fellowship tries to kill Frodo. Something I think we should talk about maybe a little bit later. Yeah. So it's not overly optimistic, nor is it naive in any way, shape, or form. But at the end of the day, one faced with a problem that affects a lot of people, you just have to get together and try to figure that that, that problem out. Yeah. And, and I don't think it's overly optimistic to assume that you can do it. Like people can actually come to an agreement about a really big problem. In fact, if we look through at least America's history, we've been able to do that a lot. We've only tried to kill each other once. <laughs> was it, so that only happened yeah. once where it, it broke down to the point so where we far, went to so war good. with ourselves. Only one civil war. Every other time we figured it out. Yeah. So that's a pretty good track record. I think that's great. I appreciate you weighing in on that. I think that is all really, really good points. That got a little bit real. Um, I do want to highlight one last thing from the Council of Elrond before we move on. And that's uh, that at the crucial juncture when it's important to decide who will be the ring bearer, who will carry the ring to Mordor, uh, Bilbo Baggins stands up and volunteers himself first because he believes that he started the whole thing. Way back in The Hobbit, he had stolen it from Gollum, and because of that, he believes that he is responsible for why the ring has been discovered again in the world and all of this darkness is gathering. It's an incredibly admirable moment for Bilbo, standing up and wanting to take responsibility for his actions and save the world. However, he is an old, old, old hobbit, and he has done enough. Uh, I mean, Bilbo can take a rest, and Gandalf articulates this for him. Uh, one of the things that he says to Bilbo is, quote, only a small part is played in great deeds by any hero, end quote. And I want to meditate on this for a moment. As a podcast that frequently talks about the hero's journey, and we will continue to talk about the hero's journey when it comes to Frodo's, uh, but Gandalf is saying here that while you may think you started it, You've heard today that there was an inc- there were thousands of years of history to this ring, and there will be thousands of years in the future where the ring will pass out of memory and more and greater things may happen. You are one small part, not to downplay your significance at all or your contribution, but you are one small part in the very long march of history, and you are allowed to take a rest and for somebody else to pick up the burden. And this theme, I think, is articulated a few times within the book. Sam, I think, says that he still feels like he has a part to play. It's suggested that even Gollum may yet have a part to play in the future. And I just think it's very interesting that it sort of takes the emphasis off of, like, this is Frodo's journey and he's the only one who can do it, and says, there is a long march. We are all contributing what we can Things may be dropped by generations that will be picked up by future ones, and we will continue carrying the cause forward as a fellowship, uh, whether we are all together or whether we are a succession of heroes trying to slowly accumulate progress. And I just think that is a fascinating uh, zoom out for this narrative that says it's not just this moment, it's all of history and it's all of the future and there is a lot there. Yeah, Gandalf is shifting the emphasis away from the individual and putting it to the historical, which I think I happen to agree with with J.R.R. Tolkien on this one, that it's not just one person's story, it's not one person's responsibility, that there are huge major things at play that got the ring to this moment, and there will be huge major things at play which will get the ring to the next moment. No one person bears all of the responsibility. 
and nor is one person the reason that it's there at that moment. Yeah. It's not the individual, but the historical that moves things to get things to where they are. As the history guy here on the podcast, it's impossible to understand where you are if you don't take and learn and appreciate where you were. The Council of Elrond and the way that it dishes in lore is a representation of that historical fact. In order for us to first make a decision about the ring that's here now, we must first go backwards and understand how we got to this point. Yeah. And this point here, now that we're here with all of this history, with understanding the causation that got event A to B to C to Elrond's council, now that we are armed with that information, like any science, if history is to be considered a social science, you must use that to predict where you go next. And in this event, they make a prediction, they make a bet, they make a game plan to take the ring to Mordor and destroy it. And Frodo is the one who makes the choice to bear it. You know, and we can talk about that at length. But the purpose of the council is to A, recognize the emphasis away from the individual and more to the historical. Yeah, absolutely. At least that point with Bilbo, that's what that is about. And I think something that will reverberate through the rest of the series, we will continue to look for the parts that even small actors play in this long drama. We will continue to look for how every choice causes some sort of consequence, whether that is good, successful, or uh, ultimately detrimental. And I know I made a point last week about the difference between living historical memory using mnemonic devices yeah. in poetry and calling that a historical. Well, all that flies out the window when you have someone at the council that was there. Who's a primary source. Yeah. So Elrond saying I was there and these things happened and I know how they happened is very historical. Yeah. And you, you, you have a lore master who literally lived the lore and that makes it a very historical council. Absolutely. And I do think any, governing body, any group of people coming together with a problem that they're trying to face must first understand the causes of that problem so that they can address the solutions. Yeah. For example, in our own history, you can't have the civil rights movement if you don't understand slavery and how slavery happened. Those problems are fundamentally linked Right. And so you can't address the problem of the civil rights movement and, you know, ending the Jim Crow era in the South unless you understand that that was a society based on slave labor. And so, and I do think this can, you could apply this to any problem we're facing today. That's just the first one that popped into my mind. Yeah. I think that's a tremendous point. That's wonderful. Well, enough comparing Lord of the Rings to contemporary politics and geopolitical systems. I'd like to pivot and talk a little bit about the main character, Frodo. I think it's worth um, some time investigating who this character is and why they're the hero and what the hero does in this book. And I do believe that despite being in a company of literal heroes, Frodo is the hero of the book. He's the main character of the quest. And I want to investigate a little bit about this character, if you'll permit me. Yeah, I think that's great. You know, we very infrequently leave Frodo's perspective. There are some times when we jump out of it, but we are mostly with Frodo and we are, you know, travelers alongside him this entire time. So we get to know him better than anybody else. And I would love to hear uh, your perspective on that. You know, and Frodo is, you know, he's kind of a bit of a homebody. He really loves the Shire. He does want to stay there. He's not an adventurer like Bilbo, who's just has this wanderlust. And he, one way that I understand Frodo in this narrative is Frodo, I think, makes three fundamental choices. And they happen at three different junctures. And without these three choices, Frodo would not be able to carry on and the story itself would collapse. 
each of these choices are accompanied with a series of advisors or, um, you know, standard bearers, sometimes with people that usher him through the choices who are giving him the information he needs to inform and empower him to choose, but they always let him choose. Instance one is the revelation that the ring he has is the ring of power, that it's fundamentally evil, and that he can't give it away. He himself has to take it out of the Shire, lest the Shire be destroyed. Isn't much of a choice. Gandalf is the person ushering him through this because he can't give the, the first choice is to give the ring to Gandalf, but Gandalf cannot accept the ring because he cannot be trusted with its power. And so he realizes, okay, I have to do this. And I make the choice to take the ring out of the Shire to shit, to save the Shire. He's boxed in, but it's still a choice of sorts. Um, he realizes that the ring is evil and he does want to get rid of it. And Gandalf is there to give him the knowledge he needs to make this choice. The second choice would be in Rivendell. And that'd be the choice to be the ring bearer. Now armed with the knowledge of the road, armed with the knowledge of how dangerous this will be and how many enemies will be pursuing him, Frodo makes the choice to carry the ring to Mordor. And this one is a much more informed decision. He has options. He doesn't have to volunteer to take it. And it's not something that he must do, but he chooses to do. And in this, there's an entire council of people, including his uncle, um, including Gimli, his father, Glowin, Legolas, Elrond, who has lived through this entire saga. They're all there to advise him. Bilbo gives him his mithril, as you mentioned before, this incredibly durable and light armor that saves his life, the sword Sting. He also has all of his friends with him in Sam, Mary, and Pippin, who are like, we're with you through and through to the end. They help usher him to make this choice. Lastly, there's Frodo in Lothlorien and Gladril. And he asks Gladril, what should I do? How should I go on? Gandalf is not here. And Frodo innately is sensing that the fellowship could break. And Gladriel does not give him advice. She is gives him the thing that he needs to hear the most. With what you've been through, ring bearer to ring bearer. I see you as an equal. You have the power to choose. I can't tell you what to do. Everything you need, you have already got you need to decide what's next and only you can decide what's next. And in it, he has his confrontation with Boromir as he's trying to figure out where to lead the company and he makes the choice to go alone. Interestingly, I had forgotten this. The movie ends with the orcs attacking the party, Merry and Pippin being taken, Boromir getting his hero's death to try to defend Merry and Pippin, and Frodo and Sam leaving together. That's not how it ends in the book. Right. The book ends simply with Frodo and Sam leaving. And that entire battle sequence that is in the movie is not in the book. The entire book, from Frodo's perspective, can be read as preparation to make the choice to go alone. And finally realizing he has everything in himself that he needs to make the decision. No one else. You could be standing next to an immortal demigoddess in her forest kingdom where time itself is slowed down, living in a song, as Sam says, and she can't give him advice. He has everything he needs. In other words, this entire journey for Frodo is the preparation for this one moment to say, I am the ring bearer and I will bear this by myself, but with Sam. That's incredible. And I think what's really interesting about this is that, okay, yes, this is part of a larger saga. Uh, the end of the fellowship of the ring is not a clean ending is not a complete arc necessarily. It is feeding into the next part of the story. And you should probably think about the three books, just the way you think of the three movies as one long story not as three individual installments. However, if we do read this as one complete arc, 
uh, Frodo's journey is not about accomplishing his quest, at least yet. It is about becoming a fully actualized person. Uh, if, if we read it the way that you are with these three choices, we have choices that are aided by uh, authority figures. We have choices that are basically already decided and you just have to fulfill uh, and sort of ceremonially make the choice or you have to rely on several counselors. And then you have uh, one that you must make on your own. You become a ring bearer, which is in this world almost a divine title. It is beyond halfling, beyond human, beyond elf, it is, uh, it is another level that you are ascending to, and that is what Frodo achieves at the end of this. Not the end of his quest, because he still has a long way to go, but he has done something, and he has uh, made significant progress in his own actualization. The climax, yes, the climax of the, move, of the movie, of the book, is Frodo and Boromir alone, isolated in the woods, and Boromir breaks and tries to take the ring from Frodo. And Frodo puts on the ring, which he only does three times in the entire book that I can recall. Yeah, I think so. He puts it on in Bree accidentally. He puts the ring on when the Nazgul are coming after him. And then he puts it on to escape Boromir. He does put it on in Tom Bombadil's house, but it barely counts there. Yes. Yeah. In, in real Significant like, times. Yes. Like using it actually uh, to hide. Yes. He's using the ring and using the power of the ring. He, he barely wears it is the point. And um, in this, he uses that to get away from Boromir. If we read this story as Frodo's story, which I believe we should. Yeah. From here, it gets more complicated. It's not just Frodo's story. But if we read this as Frodo's story, this is about Frodo deciding to not be a homebody, to say, despite my comfort, despite my desires, despite my wishes, I have a job to do to be a ring bearer, and I'm going to do that job and I know exactly what that job means. And that job means me carrying the ring into Mordor alone. This could be read in so many different ways. So this could be read metaphorically speaking, that at some point in time, we're going to carry our own baggage and we're going to have to decide what to do. And only we can make the decision to carry that baggage to its precipice and get rid of it. Yeah, no one can take our quest for us. No one can really walk in our shoes. This could be read symbolically in that uh, Frodo is finally at the point where he, like you said, is hitting his self-actualization moment where he is symbolically becoming the hobbit he needs to be. And then it can also be taken on the quite literal level. And on the literal level, this means I have everything I need. I know what I need to do. And it's really really hard. It is really difficult. And it's really difficult to look at yourself in a magic mirror or any mirror and be like, if I fail, everything will go to ruin. And not knowing if you can, can, can succeed and not knowing if you can venture the dark and terrible forest by yourself. Mind you, Frodo couldn't make it out of the first forest by himself, is finally deciding to say, I might be small, the world might be huge, it might be threatening, and I might be, relatively speaking, unarmed and unprotected, despite having Sting and Mithril. And I have to realize that only I can confront this bubbling under the surface darkness. And I think if all of us take the lesson of Frodo going forward and say, it is up to us and the choices that we make. And can we be a little braver? Can we be a little stronger? Can we care a little more? Can we put our desires just a little more on the back burner? Can we do these things to navigate the rings of power? And can we take these rings of power and melt them down in the fiery pits of Mordor? Are we capable? And that is the question that Frodo is constantly asked. Yeah, I'll take the ring out of the Shire. I don't really have a choice. I can't give it to Gandalf and it can't stay here. So I'm going to take it out of the Shire. All right. 
Now that I've taken it out of the Shire, honestly, no one else can really carry this. It's too freaking evil, and I'm too freaking good. Yeah. So I'm going to take it on. And But you know what? I got Gandalf. I got Strider. I got Boromir. I got all these heroes around me. I got my friends. And realizing, like, people are going to die. I lost Gandalf, the most powerful person here, gave their life so that I can get one step closer. I can't take anyone else with me. I have to do it alone. Yeah, that's a point I was about to make is like, Frodo is also deeply living with the loss of Gandalf, who that has affected everyone in the party because everybody had a relationship to Gandalf, especially Frodo and Aragorn, but everybody relied upon him and everybody loved him. And that reality that this is not a sure thing, that it is not written in the fates that we are going to succeed in this task just because we're doing the right thing, that reality sinks in. And the responsibility of like, okay, I have taken this on, I made this choice, uh, and I can no longer ask others to continue making this choice for me. I have to do this on my own. I have to stop sacrificing others, and I have to rely on... Uh, Galadriel's advice that I have everything that I need and hope that that's enough. Fortunately, he doesn't have to go entirely alone. And while it may seem like just having, you know, his his gardener come along with him uh, is not necessarily the greatest asset that he could have taken with him from the company, uh, I do think it, it will prove to be the most important partnership in this narrative. Uh, so I, I think that, yes, he has to make this choice to go alone, but Sam has to make the choice to go with him. Indeed. And once you have made up your own mind to tackle your own ring of power and take it to your own fiery pits, you're going to find that there'll be a Sam there. And Gotta hope so. You, you're going to find that... It is only, this is the way I read it, and certainly it could be up to interpretation. Frodo finally coming to his own and finally realizing what he needs to do and how he needs to do it, which is, I have a problem only I can solve. And that is both literal, like, this ring is going to slowly and surely drive every member of the company insane. You know, like, so I have to be the one to take it because I'm the only one that's going to be immune from this insanity and it might drive me insane. But once you really embrace the the true nature of the problem, once you're really willing to ta tackle it, once you're really willing to say, I'm going to put the good of all of Middle Earth ahead of everything else, including my dear friends at this point, I won't let another one get killed when you are ready to cross that river, when you're ready to cross that Rubicon and to make that trip, you're going to find that it won't be completely alone, that you will have a trusted friend with you. Sam making the choice is as transformative to his character as is Frodo's choice to go alone. These two happen, coincide, they have to coincide, and it must be Frodo and Sam. And the reason that it must be Frodo and Sam is because Frodo deciding to sacrifice all, he only knows what true sacrifice and true service is because of Sam's sacrifices that he's already willing to make. If you think about this relationship between Frodo and Sam in the first book, Frodo is definitely the social better. He has more money. Sam is in his employ. Yeah. He works for him. He calls him Master Frodo. Right. Um, why does Sam seem so connected to Frodo? What about Sam makes him willing to do whatever it takes to help out Frodo? Are you asking me? Yeah. I mean, there's almost an oath of vassalage to it. Like, if we're looking at the sort of medieval setting to it, he's just a gardener. Like, like Frodo isn't a lord by any means, but there is a deep connection to it where uh, Sam almost feels like he has been sworn in to service to Frodo, um, and that he is his man for better or for worse. 
Um, beyond that, I, I mean, Sam is is a, an incredibly pure, like honor bound character who uh, is constantly surprising us with how he he moves beyond expectations. Uh, and I, I want to get more into his character as it goes on because I think he develops into being one of the great heroes of this saga. If not, uh, I'm going to say it, the great hero of this saga. I'm not sure how ready I am to make that argument, but I would love to hear your answer to this question too. I read it that you will never be able to navigate the complexities and dangers and hostility of a cruel and indifferent world by yourself. Mm, mm -hmm. You have to do it with others. And what Sam implicitly understands is A, the stakes of the scenario, and B, his role in that scenario. Accepting who he is, which is a gardener, right? Which is someone who helps grow things. He cannot countenance a world in which Blackness covers everywhere. A yeah, world yeah, uh. where nothing grows. And so he realizes these stakes very easily. He is the first one that understands that Frodo wants to leave and wants to go alone. And what he's debating is how to tell the rest of the company. He understands Frodo's mind because Sam is truly a self-sacrificing, altruistic character. Frodo is learning to become that. Yeah. Frodo is learning to put everything else ahead of himself. He is, his journey is to choose to do this alone. And as soon as Frodo makes that step, I'm going to do this by myself. Sam's like, yeah, of course you are, buddy. I knew this the entire time. And by the way, it's not going to be by yourself. Oh my God, I love Sam so much. Mary and Pippin can't make that choice. No. One, they don't really understand the danger. They really don't. They don't get it. But right? the closeness between Frodo and Sam, the fact that he's a confidant, means that he has more of an insight into what the true danger is. And he has this deep love for the elves. He has this you know, desire to, to see what's outside the Shire. And so he is predisposed to be like, okay, I will come with you on the adventure. But for him to even make the choice to leave Lothlorien and to be like, let's let's keep going, even though it's going to get darker and darker and it's going to stop being like fun with the elves is really, really remarkable for him. Totally. And so I think to me, that's the lesson. Be brave and strong and it's going to be dark and scary and you're going to you're going to you're we are all going to stand at the crossroads between a comfortable journey and an uncomfortable one and the uncomfortable uh, journey is going to be the wrong road to take where the uncomfortable one will be the right one yeah and if you choose to go that uncomfortable journey to do the actual work to really dig in you're not going to do it alone you know and you don't have to do it alone Yes, you might have to leave some friends behind. This is very true in both literal, metaphoric, symbolic ways. There are some people that you will have to outgrow and leave behind. But once you make that choice to go to the fiery chasm from whence it came, you're going to do it with your Sam. Yeah. Oh, beautiful. All right. So let's move on. There's a few other things I wanted to touch upon. Let's do it. Um, I, I, so speaking of Frodo and his choice... The book culminates with Frodo and Boromir alone, and Boromir tries to take the ring from Frodo. Would you like to talk about Boromir a little bit? I really would. I find Boromir's uh, character to be incredibly compelling uh, in the way he's written in the book. And I think he's played beautifully by Sean Bean in the movie as well. His redemption arc, which does not really occur in the book, uh, is is quite beautiful in the movies. Um, but this final scene between him and Frodo is really disturbing, tells us a lot about, and I, I think it holds portents for a lot of the future uh, twists and turns of the story as it continues through the next two books, because we see firsthand the corruption of the ring and the sort of ambiguous nature of man within this chain of different races of Middle-earth. I think he's written with 
uh, some incredible insecurity and depth in a way that a lot of the characters really aren't. Um, I, I, I don't know the exact quote here, but uh, there's a moment where he is sort of lunging at Frodo and asking for the ring with like a, a smile on his face, but his words hold a sort of darkness. Uh, and then as soon as he has attacked Frodo and realized what he's done, he softens and immediately becomes remorseful. I think it's a really interesting uh, moment where we see the incredible conflict within this character that stands in for the conflict of men within this universe. Yeah, totally. Well, if we think of it, strategically speaking, you are in possession of a game-changing weapon that the enemy that you are trying to defeat does not have, it would make sense to utilize said weapon against the enemy. It doesn't make a ton of sense to destroy the weapon so that sure, neither right. of you have it. Yeah. Because if isn't it better off in your possession than it is in the enemy's possession? And furthermore, if you're going to take that weapon to the enemy's backyard and wave it around, there's a good chance that the enemy could take that weapon from you. And now the enemy has that weapon. His line of reasoning in terms of the strategy of what he wants to do with the ring in this, in this scene makes a ton of sense. It really does. We have the ring. Why should we deliver it to Sauron? Why don't we use it? It's something that we could actually use in the movie. He says this in the council kind of as a foreshadow, but this is saved for the end in the book. Yeah. And so why doesn't, why don't we use the ring? Why can't we take the weapon of the enemy against the enemy to defeat the enemy? I think that's a very valid criticism, but it frames it as a moral failing and the moral failing of Boromir as a character. And perchance, spreads that to all men. What are your thoughts on that? Who? I mean that so that's huge. I think it is important that there is conflict in Boromir that he feels an urge, he feels a temptation to use the ring and he also feels that it's wrong too even uh though he allows himself to uh succumb to it briefly. But the ring is an instrument of power, and it is an instrument of domination and power and will and violence. And what Tolkien, I think, is establishing through, uh, through all of the legends uh, regarding Middle-earth, and especially this War of the Ring, is that domination and will and violence and this sort of single-handed... Um, you know, I, I can choose the fate of all humanity because I have this item that will uh, wipe it out or that will bend everyone to my will, that that is not a way to lead the world, that there is hope for a better future that is maybe democratic or pluralistic or allows for individual choice and allows for the flourishing of, you know, diverse culture uh, and development past uh, just the will to dominate, uh, and that the ring in in whoever's hands, it doesn't matter how good they are, it doesn't matter if they're Galadriel or Gandalf or Saruman, it will corrupt and it will work its violent domination. And that cannot be good. There is no way for that to be good, even if it's used uh, with the intent to defeat the evil. I love that. In Boromir... He wants to take the ring from Fro Frodo via force, via violence. It, it is yeah, not, yeah. he's not just saying, eh, you know, can I borrow it? I, I need this weapon. And he's not winning the rhetorical argument either. He tries to violently rip it from Frodo rather than convince him that his way is right. Absolutely. And in that is the implicit argument that though it be great military and strategic sense to use the ring against Sauron, rather than try to destroy the ring, the very fact that you're trying to use it to win in a military setting is itself wrong. In other words, simply put, war itself is morally wrong. Waging war is not okay. In fact, we should do everything in our power to avoid it. And if you give anyone the means to completely annihilate their enemies 
regardless of what side they're on, one you're more sympathetic to versus one that you're more antagonistic towards, it doesn't matter. Annihilating your enemies isn't the point. The point is the world should be in peace. Yeah. We shouldn't be trying to kill each other. Peace is the ultimate goal to be striven for. Absolutely. And I know, and I'm certainly, that sounds like I'm not a hippie, you know, like right. I'm not like peace man, but at the same time, like, yeah, conflicts are going to happen. And sometimes they will be decided militarily at the end of the day, wielding ultimate power over your enemies is not free. It is not the way that you can ultimately build a better middle earth just as in our world. I think it's also worth saying that at this point in time, Boromir as a character is exhausted. Yeah. At the end of his rope and sees a road towards his home and sees a path to better defend his home. His motivations, his intentions are not evil in and of themselves. And Though they might be slightly more selfish, there's certainly an air of noble sacrifice to them. I do want to get home. I am tired, and I do want to defend my people, and this would really help me do that. Though it's also worth noting that so many of the terrible things that do and have and will happen, both in our Earth and Middle Earth, start from some really good intentions and rational reasons and they get carried to the point where we become Boromirs, where we become willing to steal and kill someone we swore to defend and protect because it might get us a cl- an inch closer to our home and our rest. Oh, amazing. You know, it's really important that this conflict and that this strategy or this argument of why don't we use it for ourselves, is worked out through Boromir as one of the two representatives of the race of man uh, in the fellowship, as one of the two representatives that we are close to uh, that looks the most like us. And men are probably the most complexly written characters in the Lord of the Rings saga. Uh, And I, I don't say that as a detriment to the writing of the elves or the halflings or the wizards, or anything like that. I think there is great intention in the way that these characters are written. Because the men uh, hold up a mirror to us reading, because we presumably are descended from them, or we are the same race of them, uh, and we are not fairy tale creatures. Uh, And this brings me to uh, a point made by the dear friend of J.R.R. Tolkien and author of The Chronicles of Narnia, another very important fantasy series, C.S. Lewis, who wrote an essay, a critical essay, about The Lord of the Rings, where he referred to uh, many of the characters of the elvish or hobbit races in uh, J.R.R. Tolkien's work uh, by saying they, quote, have their insides on the outside and are visible souls, end quote. I think that is a beautiful way to describe these kind of archetypal figures uh, who stand in for uh, for big ideas. And, you know, we're not allegory, so we're not, we're Tolkien, so we're not necessarily saying they're allegory, but we can save time on, like, deep character insight on Gimli and Legolas because we know that them overcoming a great blood feud is very, very important, and we can do that without necessarily going into every single motivation that they have. We have to go into more complexity with characters like Boromir and Aragorn because you and I can absolutely see ourselves in them and we can see our own failings in them. Yeah, I totally agree. But I also think there is something bubbling under the surface, at least with Boromir. I don't know. It takes time for his soul to come on the outside, and it does in this book. And it's yeah. it's really, really scathing rebuke of the race of man in Middle Earth and potentially projected back into our Earth. And that at the end of the day, power, the will to dominate and control is a temptation that men cannot be too close to. Because if they are, they will try to seize it for themselves. Gladriel looks at the ring of power, admits that she wants it, has the capacity to take it, even envisions the world that she would build should she have the ring, 
and then says, but I'm not going to take it. Despite all of these temptations, yeah, you're going to offer me this. Yeah, this would be awesome. I'd be the, the queen of Middle Earth. This would be fantastic, but I'm not going to. Even though I'm tempted, I'm not actually going to reach my hand for it and actually take it. Boromir says, you know what? I'm close enough to it. It should be mine, and I'm going to take it. And I do think we, we, us humans, you know, that Boromir is a part of need to reflect is, is there something Tolkien is saying that we should really try to extrapolate and understand is our natural state to be more Aragorn or Boromir? Yeah. So I'm really glad that you said that because I think the doubling of Aragorn and Boromir is incredibly significant here because while Boromir overall is a fairly noble character. He is definitely prideful and he makes serious mistakes and has definite moral failings, but the like history is on the side of Boromir. But he does in this duality with Aragorn represent the worst impulses of man and Aragorn represents the best. So I think Tolkien is not exactly saying like mankind's nature is toward corruption and selfishness and power seeking. There is total potential for that, but there is equal potential for being the noble self-sacrificing character who will follow the hobbits and protect them until they get safely to their home and will lead an army against orcs in order to make sure that they fulfill their quest. I mean, there is a balance that is implied in these two characters and a, 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 a harmony between the worst impulses and the best of man. So we have an opportunity to be Boromir or we could be Aragorn or we could Uh, fall somewhere in the middle. I love it. Yeah. Do you have any final thoughts? This has been amazing. Uh, We have been talking for a while now about uh, the fellowship of the ring and it's only making me more excited to continue reading this uh, this series and continue talking about it, whether we're talking about the influences or just, you know, going back and forth about how we feel about the characters and the choices that they make. Uh, you know, this has been, the Lord of the Rings has been one of the most influential uh, book series ever written, but also one of the most influential to me personally. I don't think that I would be who I am today without the influence of The Lord of the Rings. I wouldn't have been inspired to read medieval literature. Uh, I wouldn't feel the way that I feel about fascism, you know, without uh, things like The Lord of the Rings and Harry Potter. I wouldn't feel uh, as strongly as I do about what a good world looks like. And I think that it has been uh, just an incredibly powerful a piece of art to me. And I'm so grateful that I've been able to share this with you, the person that I love most in the entire world. Um, I can't wait to keep going. I enough said until next time, guys, be kind. Be kind. And just as you can't understand what to do with the ring until you understand where the ring came from, how it got here, what is this whole ring thing anyway? (laughs) Should I cut that? (laughs) What is this ring thing anyway? anyway? A history as sung by Bilbo. (laughs) Ha, 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 ha.